0: In order to make real change in our lives, often what is required is small, values-aligned shifts.
1: Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. I'm here today, as always, with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with my friend, Dr. Susan David. Among her many accomplishments, she's a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be talking about emotional agility an innovative approach to navigating life's twists and turns with insight and according to our values rather than via our usual knee-jerk hooks in which our thoughts, emotions, or stories drive our behavior. Today, we'll explore what's wrong with today's increasingly popular happiness movement. We'll also discover the idea that unpleasant or negative emotions actually serve a purpose, what that purpose is, and how we can use it to our advantage, And we'll learn some practical ways in which we can develop and strengthen our responses to adversity that will leave us not only stronger, but more capable in the end. And don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Susan David. And that link is in the show notes, as always, at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now enjoy this episode with Dr. Susan David. Tell us what emotional agility is, because right now it sort of stands as possible jargon or just a book title. What is it and why is it important? And then we'll dive in and get into all the details.
0: So the key question that my work focuses on is this. What does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in a complex and ever-changing world? And emotional agility is this. It's the set of skills that we all as human beings need in order to deal with ourselves and others in a way that's healthy and in a way that enables us to respond effectively to the challenges that life throws at us. And I can talk in more detail about what emotional agility is defined, but really it's this skill set that allows us to be healthy with ourselves.
1: I like that the idea here with the book in part is to deal with life's twists and turns, deal with the difficulties that face us according to our values, or even finding our values in the first place, rather than falling into what you call knee-jerk hooks in which our thoughts, emotions, or stories in that sort of meta sense drive our behavior. This is probably a great place to begin because I think a lot of us fall into these traps and fall into these hooks. So why don't we actually start with the four hooks that you mentioned at first in the book?
0: Yeah. So we all fall into what I call in the book, hooks. And what I mean by hooks is that we all have thousands, literally thousands of thoughts, emotions, and stories that we tell ourselves and that we experience every single day. And there's nothing unusual or abnormal with these thoughts. So there's nothing wrong about, for instance, having a so-called negative thought. There's nothing wrong about having sadness or anxiety. I mean, we live in a world that tells us the opposite. We live in a world that tells us we should be happy all the time. But in fact, these emotional experiences are normal. However, what sometimes, and for many people, what often happens is we get hooked by our thoughts, our emotions, our stories. And what I mean by a hook is where our thought, for instance, I'm not good enough or I'm just not cut out to do X, an emotion, things like sadness or disappointment, what's the point, pessimism, or even a story, a story that might have been written on our mental chalkboards in grade three about who we are and what we deserve in life. Sometimes what happens is we get tied to those so strongly that they start to dominate our actions. So we won't put our hand up for a project. We won't explore intimacy in a relationship. And this is where our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories hook us. They drive our actions in a way that takes us away from our values. And in the book I explore different types of hooks. So I explore, for instance, getting stuck in frequently this idea of monkey mind where we're so busy telling ourselves what's wrong in the workplace, for instance, that we stop thinking about am I being effective? That's one example of a hook. Another example of a hook is where We have a story. We have a story that we, in order to survive in the world, have to keep people at an arm's length. That might be a story that at one time in our lives might have been functional. It might have been helpful in our childhoods, for instance, to have that story because that story kept us safe. But what we find out later on in our lives is that that story actually stops us from exploring and Experiencing the beauty potentially of relationships. And so I describe different ways in the book that we get hooked into our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories in ways that critically stop us from living the life that we want.
1: So there's a lot of hooks that really hit home for me, one of which was thought blaming. You discuss thought blaming. And I think a lot of, obviously, a lot of people do this, or it wouldn't have been the first one you mentioned in the book. Let's break down thought blaming monkey mindedness and these old outgrown ideas, these old patterns and new situations. I think these are some of the common culprits that you probably see as well.
0: So thought blaming is a very, very common way we get hooked. And this is when we essentially treat our thoughts as fact and we blame our thoughts then for our actions. So we might say something like, I had the thought that I wasn't going to get the job, so I didn't apply for it. So what you're seeing here is a person believing the thought and acting in a way as if that thought is true. Or I had an argument with someone who's really close to me, and I thought that that person should make the first move in patching things up. And so I just left it, and I now haven't spoken to them for a few years. And so what you start seeing is this idea that we have a thought, we treat that thought as fact. And we then act in a way that is discordant with our values. And this is very common because we have thousands of thoughts every day. And some of those thoughts about who we are, what we deserve, but also about what we expect from people around us. And when we treat these as fact, often what we do is we stop acting in a way that actually serves us.
1: Right. So essentially, we start to think that our thoughts Are causing behavior instead of taking control of this and realizing that we can change the way that we react to events and even to thoughts in the first place?
0: Absolutely. A key idea behind emotional agility is that emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves, to be with our thoughts in ways that are compassionate and curious about them, but still take action in ways that are concordant with our values. When we are hooked, when we blame our thoughts, for instance, when we treat our thoughts as fact. What we're doing is we are essentially giving power to the thought as opposed to power to ourselves. So, you know, who's in charge, the thinker or the thought? And so often what we do in our everyday lives is we get so stuck in the thought that we have. A very common one, for instance, is I am right and the person is wrong. So I am right. My colleague is an idiot. Maybe your colleague is an idiot. But you still get a choice as to how you want to be in that situation. You still get the choice as to whether your actions are serving your career or not. But what starts to happen is when we start treating our thoughts as fact, we say, my colleague is an idiot. That's the thought that I've had. I'm right about this. And we stop actually inserting this idea of who do I want to be in this situation I might be right, but am I being helpful? Am I acting in a way that is consistent with who I wanna be in the world?
1: One thing that I've found myself guilty of in the past especially, and to a certain extent depending on how stressed out I am even today, is what you call monkey-mindedness, which is planning out entire interactions and responses that have not even happened yet, exhausting ourselves in the process, which of course takes us out of the moment, but also I end up getting, this is so embarrassing to admit, but I'll end up getting mad at someone who has done absolutely nothing based on something that they might say based on this discussion <laughs> flowchart that I've created in my head while walking outside. And then I find myself annoyed with that person who I haven't talked to in six months because I think they're going to say this and I'm going to be so angry when they say that. It's ridiculous.
0: So yeah, monkey mindedness is And that what you describe is exactly it. Uh, Monkey mindedness is a typical way that we get hooked where again, we give power to our thoughts in a very particular way. And that stops us from being able to be present in the world. It stops us from being able to walk out the house and see our children and be connected with them. It stops us from going into that conversation with that individual with an open heart and with curiosity and with a stance that enables us to bring about a good outcome with them. So monkey mindedness is where we basically get so broody within our mind about what it is that the person's feeling or saying or what we're thinking or what we're going to say to the person that we are not actually present with and connected with our own thoughts and emotions and with the situation in a way that's helpful.
1: The last trap that I really identified with here was the old outgrown ideas. In other words, using old patterns in new situations. So the example I think that comes from the book is, and is not me personally, just for the record, people who don't show emotion or vulnerability because maybe when they were a kid, they were abused or they had some sort of abusive relationship. So now they don't show emotion and they don't show vulnerability because that worked for them as a kid and now they can't have close relationships because their default is I don't want to get close to somebody because when I get close to someone, they hurt me. And that story persists through their life.
0: Absolutely. This is so important. My background, my training is as a psychologist. And so often in the workplace, as well as in our personal relationships, you see people who have a story. It's a story about what helps them or helped them at some point to be effective in the world. So it might be, you know, in my previous job, the way to get ahead was to be very conniving or the way to get ahead was to be very closed. And then the person goes into a new environment where that new context actually demands something very different. And yet the story that they have about how to get ahead and how to survive persists. And sometimes what you see is these stories carry through from childhood. You know, They carry through from something that happened to us, something that someone said to us, Some of the stories, as I mentioned before, were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three. Now, what's really important about these stories is there's nothing wrong with having a story. We all have stories. And in fact, our stories help us to make sense of the world. We all need coherent narratives to help us move through life. So there's nothing inherently wrong with having a story and having Stories is actually necessary to human beings. But what starts to happen is there's stories that we might have had at a particular point in our lives that was actually functional. It was a helpful story. It helped us to survive. It helped us to get through. But over time, that story becomes outgrown. It no longer serves the new job. It no longer serves the person we are. It no longer serves what we're trying to get in our lives. And it's at that point that we need to recognize that the story now has started to own us rather than we owning the story.
1: So that dictates our behavior moving forward because like you said, the story then owns us and we might not even see it after a while. We might just think, well, isn't everyone like this because we grew up like that? Or we might have an inkling that, yeah, we don't show emotion or vulnerability, but that program is running almost at the survival level. It's not something that we can just get into and change that easily. It's not a bad habit like, oh, you know, I started drinking coffee. I got to cut down on coffee. It's more like, no, I've been doing this since I was six.
0: And also, you know, we have a culture that tells us particular rules about emotions. Uh, These are called display rules. So boys don't cry is a display rule. Boys don't experience emotions is a display rule. Woman should smile all the time is a display rule. You know, people with cancer should be positive. These are display rules that we have in our society. Now we often grow up in our backgrounds and our culture with display rules. What happens is if you then move into a relationship where you're being closed is actually ruining the relationship where there's a lack of a sense of intimacy or disclosure around emotions, and it's actually ruining a relationship that is hugely valuable. At that point, this is where you've moved from having a story that you just have with you into something that is not serving your values, is actually stopping you from having a fruitful interaction with something or some situation that you really care about.
1: I noticed in the book you're somewhat critical of this sort of pop psychology happiness movement that's so popular these days. And I too, I think there's an overemphasis on positive thinking and that this sort of let's feel good all the time. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. This type of mentality is unhealthy. What is wrong in your opinion with today's increasingly popular happiness movement?
0: What's fascinating is a number of things. Firstly, people who become overly focused on becoming happy. What we know from the research is that they become paradoxically more unhappy over time. There's almost this idea that they set expectations about what their lives should be about. And yet the reality is that life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. We are baked into a contract with life that has difficulty, that has bad experiences. And so when we become overly focused on happiness, we don't allow for the reality of life as it is. And so we find that people who are overly focused on happiness actually become more unhappy over time as their expectations are disappointed time and time again by the reality of life. So that's one of the issues. A second really key issue around this focus on happiness is it leads us into unhealthy relationships with ourselves. Imagine you are experiencing disaffection or disengagement in the workplace. Okay. So this is something that you are experiencing. And if you are someone who then says, oh, I've just got to be positive. I've just got to grit through it. I've just got to keep on with it. What you are doing is you are shutting down a key resource in your life. And that resource is that our emotions, all of our emotions, our sadness, our dissatisfaction, our disaffection, our anxiety, all of our emotions are part and parcel of the way that we as human beings have of communicating with ourselves. So if you say to yourself, I'm unhappy, but at least I've got a job and I'm just going to keep a smile on my face, what you find is that in five years time, that person is Still unhappy, still in the same job and hasn't been able to use a key resource to actually help themselves to shape and change. So what becomes critical with emotional agility is that all emotions, even if they feel uncomfortable, all emotions are critical to us as human beings. And what is really beautiful is that our emotions are actually flashing lights, to things that we value, to things that we care about. When you are experiencing that disaffection in the workplace, that disaffection might be a signpost to you that growth is really important. Or if you're angry with someone, that anger might be a signpost that fairness is really important. Or if you feel rage when you see the news that rage might be a signpost to your values. So our difficult emotions, rather than being these things that we should push aside, are things that we should actually really see as being valuable because they provide a signpost to things that we care about. And when we connect with that value, it is that that allows us then to shape, make changes, take action, put our hands up and move towards what is of import in our worlds. There are a number of reasons that I think, you know, happiness is not a helpful paradigm, not a helpful thing that we want to really chase. But primarily what it does is it stops us from being in effective communication with ourselves. You're listening to The
2: Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, Susan David. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages.
3: at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
2: You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never
3: work a day in your life.
2: Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com
1: slash advertisers. For now, let's get back to Jordan and Susan. So you're saying that these unpleasant or negative emotions actually serve a purpose. And this, for me, was a really interesting point in the book because unpleasant emotions are unpleasant, right? And that means that most of us don't want to feel them for that reason you're saying, or it seems like you're saying, and of course, correct me where I'm wrong, they're beacons of the values that are important to us. They can indicate that sense of disaffection or like you said, dissatisfaction or some sort of concern that we're maybe moving away from what you refer to as our values. And nobody wants to feel that way. So what we do, instead of saying, hmm, this signals something in my life, maybe I should listen to it. We say, oh, I don't want to feel this. And also, I'm supposed to be happy because I heard this podcast or read this book about it or saw a documentary on Netflix about happy people living longer. So I'm going to push this aside, push it down. And like you said earlier, and five years later, we're still in the job we don't like or in the relationship we don't like. But gee, I got this weird plastic smile on my face like I'm supposed to.
0: When we think about life, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. We experience our greatest levels of growth We experience our greatest achievements when we are able to face into stuff that makes us uncomfortable, even if it feels difficult to do so, and we make changes in accordance with that. So for instance, I'm a parent, I've got two young children, I travel a lot for my work. Imagine I'm sitting in a hotel room and I feel a sense of guilt. On the one hand, I could say to myself, oh, okay, I feel guilty, but you know what? I'm living the high life. I'm just going to ignore that guilt and I'm just going to keep on with it. Or I could say, what is this guilt telling me? This guilt is telling me I care about presence and connectedness with my children. And at the moment, there's a lack of that in my life. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that our emotions are facts. You know, our emotion, because just because I have an emotion doesn't mean it's fact our emotions are data. They're not directions. So I can look into the emotion of guilt and I can say, what is this guilt trying to tell me? And how can I shape my life or make small changes in my life that help me then to be a more present and connected parent? And that guilt ultimately has served a purpose. If I just ignore the guilt, I'm not doing anything that allows me to shape my life according to my values. And in fact, what I would likely do is just keep on going further and further and further away from the thing that I care about. You know, I would not be making these changes. So absolutely, what I suggest in emotional agility is that all of our emotions, even the ones that feel uncomfortable, our emotions are data. They point to our values. They're not directions. We don't need to believe every emotion that we feel but they are inherently helpful and there's so much to be gained in our lives by opening our hearts up to these uncomfortable emotions.
1: Aren't we often triggered or influenced in a negative way by our emotions or is this always somehow positive if we dig deep enough into the emotion itself?
0: So what I talk about in emotional agility is the idea that we can get hooked by our difficult emotions. And when we hooked by our difficult emotions, what we do is we treat these emotions as fact and we often use them to dominate our actions. You know, I think that there is a kind of tyranny of positivity in our society where even people who are going through very difficult experiences, people with cancer, you know, what do we first and foremost say to people with cancer? Just be positive. A friend of mine who recently died of stage four breast cancer said to me, this does feel like a tyranny of positivity. If it was just a case of being positive, the friends in my stage four breast cancer support group would be alive today. And by people just telling me that I just need to be positive all the time, what it does is it starts to make me feel implicated in my own death, that I somehow wasn't able to think my way out of it. And I wasn't positive enough. You know, more importantly, what she described happening to her is that it stops her from being able to be authentic within her own experience, that she is dying and she wants to be able to have meaningful conversations with the people that she loves without this buffer of false positivity. So what I really suggest in emotional agility is that firstly, all of our emotions have potential value. But what we need to learn is we need to learn the skills that enable us to mine our emotions for their value and to be able to use those emotions effectively as opposed to have these knee jerk hooks. We often get hooked by emotions in ways that don't serve us. You know, if we look at rates of depression and anxiety and suicide, they are horrific. The World Health Organization shows, for instance, that this year, Depression is the single leading cause of disability globally, outstripping heart disease, outstripping cancer. So what we have is we have a situation where we all have discomfort in our lives. We all have difficult emotions. And yet we don't actually, from a very young age, often develop a skill set to help us to deal with these emotions in ways that are effective, in ways that are healthy. And what does health look like when it comes to our emotions? It's not about trying to push emotions aside for false positivity. Rather, it's about being able to recognize that sometimes our emotions hook us and that if we instead are open to our emotions and try to understand the values that they point to, we can actually make changes that are really Profound and important in our lives, in our relationships, in every aspect of how we love, live, parent, and lead.
1: So it sounds like you're saying in some way that it's somehow productive to engage in negative emotions, negative thoughts, but there's got to be a right way to do this because we can either dwell on these or we can push them aside. Those are probably both bad options, right? That doesn't sound very emotionally agile to both live in one miserable state or to ignore it entirely. So and you've mentioned that emotions help us communicate with other people, they help us communicate with ourselves, they're the critical messengers, so when we shut down or we ignore those emotions, we end up with depression and anxiety, but the opposite seems like it would be true as well, to just sit there and live in it would be bad in itself, so how do we develop the agility, because it seems like the first step of agility is stepping between those two options in a way that is healthy.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things that I explore in the book is often when people have difficult emotions, what they do is they either bottle those emotions and bottling emotions is where you push emotions aside. So you say something like the example I gave earlier, I'm unhappy at my job, but at least I've got a job. So I'm just going to get on with it. Even with very good intentions, you might say, well, you know, I've got this project to do, or I just can't go there. There's nothing wrong with doing bottling on occasion. But when you look at people who consistently push difficult emotions aside, what you find is that those individuals have higher levels of anxiety, depression, lower levels of well-being, and lower levels of general life effectiveness. They're less able to achieve their goals. They're less successful in their day-to-day lives. So does that mean you now need to dwell on emotions, to brood on emotions? Absolutely not. Brooding is the opposite. Brooding is where instead of pushing emotions aside, instead we obsess about our emotions. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? This is terrible. This is awful. When we do this, interestingly, even though it looks exactly the opposite of bottling, you find the same impact, lower levels of well-being, higher levels of anxiety, lower levels of problem solving. So you start saying then, what is effectiveness around our inner world look like? And this is critical because how we deal with our inner world, how we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, our stories, drives everything in our lives, our relationships, our careers, how we come to ourselves and our world, everything, how we parent. So this is critical, mission critical stuff in our lives. So you start saying, well, what does effectiveness look like? And A first part of effectiveness that I explore in emotional agility is the idea that it is really important to, instead of trying to struggle with our emotions, to rather be able to choose to open ourselves up to our emotions. So ending the struggle that we have with our emotions by dropping the rope instead of saying something like, I shouldn't feel that, or that's a bad feeling, or judging ourselves for having particular emotions and in recent research that I did with 70,000 people I found that a third of us either judge ourselves for having difficult emotions or try to push those emotions aside or deal with those emotions in ways that aren't helpful so what we want to do from a sense of effectiveness is open our hearts up to the emotion like this is what I am feeling there's nothing wrong or right about it, it's not a fact or not a fact, it's just data. So if we open ourselves up to our emotions, that firstly is absolutely critical. It's this idea of what I call willingness, the willingness to experience our emotions. And then we know that there are other very important strategies that help us with this. So for instance, often when we experience a difficulty, we use very broad brushstrokes, very black and white labels to describe what it is that we're feeling. Very often people will say things like, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. But there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment or stress and that gnawing feeling of I'm in the wrong relationship or wrong career. What's so fascinating is when you look at just this very simple strategy, people who label their emotions in a more granular way. What it does is it activates what is called the readiness potential in our brains and allows us to understand in a more accurate way, what is the stress that I'm experiencing and then to put strategies in place. So there are these very powerful strategies that allow us not just to be, oh, I want to feel the emotions and that's the end of it. But when we do very simple things like label an emotion, it is mission critical then in terms of being able to make change in our world.
1: All right, so emotionally agile people still have the same negative feelings, but they just handle them in a different way. Can we talk about some practical ways that we can deal with this? I know in the book, Emotional Agility, you do talk about curiosity. They don't allow those feelings to guide their actions. They act in alignment with their values and their goals and, and not in alignment with the feeling itself. So how practically can we do this and become more emotionally agile people? In the book, you have a labeling exercise. Maybe that's a good place to start.
0: Yeah. So there are many practical strategies. And for listeners who are saying, just give me the kind of capsule definition of what I mean by emotional agility, a good way of thinking about emotional agility, just as we kind of lead into these practical strategies, is Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, speaks to this profoundly beautiful idea. It's this. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. When we are emotionally in agile, when we are hooked by our thoughts and our emotions, there's no space between stimulus and response. You know, you think something and you react or you feel something and you get stuck in that feeling in a way that's not helpful to you. So, what we're trying to do with emotional agility is really create space between the stimulus and response in a way that allows us then to be and live in a way that is more intentional and in a way that is more values aligned. And they're highly, highly practical strategies that allow us to do this. Firstly, is this idea of when you experience an emotion, Often when people experience an emotion or experience a difficult negative thought, one of the first things that we tend to do is say things like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that I am not allowed to have that thought. That's a bad thought. That's a bad emotion. And so the first like just very practical thing to do with emotions is nothing. <laughs> Which the simplest thing is to do nothing, you know, instead of trying to jostle with and hustle with our emotions is to do nothing. This is the emotion that you're experiencing. So that is a first very practical, very simple strategy. So this sounds like
1: it's not necessarily about ignoring negative thoughts, but about not getting attached to them. Because you say do nothing, but I don't want people to think, oh, okay, so I just put this aside because that's basically just bottling it up.
0: Correct, correct. So by doing nothing, I mean don't, argue with. Don't hustle. Even when you try to push something aside, you are actively trying to push the thing aside. You're hustling with the emotion as opposed to noticing the emotion with curiosity and with compassion. You can experience a difficult emotion and simply just notice it for what it is. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. What you're not trying to do in that situation is you're not trying to push the emotion aside. You're not trying to hustle with it. You are not trying to invalidate yourself around it. So a very, very critical first step around emotional agility is to open your heart up. What I call in the book, showing up to emotions, to open your heart up to the emotion with a curiosity and compassion. And that's not doing anything with the emotion. It's just opening yourself up. Like, gee, this is what I'm Experiencing. And this is really important. This idea of compassion around our emotional experience is very important because we live in a world that again would have us believe that we are in a never ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where we keep on needing to be happier, be more positive, be better, set more goals. And sometimes We forget that we are imperfect, beautiful human beings doing the best we can with who we are, with what we've got and with the resources that we've been given in life. And so when we apply that self compassion to our emotional experiences, it's like, I'm feeling sad, you know, and there's nothing wrong about the sadness. There's nothing right about the sadness. But we can also recognize that sadness in a compassionate way towards ourself is a difficult emotion to experience. And so a first part of emotional agility from a practical sense is not trying to push the emotion aside, not bottle the emotion, not root the emotion, but just be open to the emotion with a sense of curiosity and compassion. Other strategies, and I talk about a range of different strategies, is what I call stepping out. Stepping out is where you notice the emotion or the thought for what it is. It's a thought or it's emotion. It's not a fact. It's not a directive to action. It is something that may contain something of value to you. And so what you can start doing is you can start noticing the thought for what it is. I'm noticing the thought that I am not cut out for this career, even though it's a career that I really want to put my hand up for or I'm noticing the thought that I'm not good enough, or I'm noticing the thought that I'm going to stuff up my presentation, or I'm noticing the emotion of anxiety. What do you start doing when you start noticing, simply prefixing, I am noticing, you noticing the thought, the emotion, the story for what it is, you create critical space between you and the emotion or you and the thought. You're not bottling it, you're not pushing it aside, you're just noticing it for what it is. It's Thought. It's an emotion, just like you would notice your hand or notice your toe. You know, it just is what it is. We can also start labeling our emotions, like we mentioned earlier, where instead of using just these broad brushstrokes around our experience, we can start saying, This thing that I'm calling stress is actually something else. And this is really important. If I'm working with a coaching client, who says to me, I'm just stressed. If I took that stress on face value, I might say, okay, well, why don't you delegate more? Isn't that the stock standard solution for stress? But what if that person's stress when they dig a little deeper is, I'm disappointed in myself because I thought that I would be further along in my career than I am. If that's the case, tips on delegation just don't even start to cut it. And so it's only by digging a bit deeper into what is this emotion really, what is the more nuanced label really, that the person's able to understand the true cause of the emotion. And that then allows them to start saying, well, what do I need to start putting in place here in order to make real values align shifts in my life but you only get there by first being open to the discomfort being open to the emotion noticing the emotion for what it is it's not a fact but let's be curious about it and being able to label that emotion for what it is what in psychological terms is called emotion granularity or emotion differentiation
2: hey you've made it this far so fingers off that skip button buddies we'll be right back with more from susan david after these brief announcements Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. So for a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, here's the conclusion of our awesome interview
1: with Susan David. There's so much here that we can dig up. I want to be cognizant of that and make sure I don't lose track of some of, the, some of the really practical threads here as well. In the book, you discuss the idea that we need to update our career narratives, not just our resumes. So going back to what you were just discussing, especially with respect to stories, and emotions as facts and things like that, at work, especially when things get intense, we too often fall back on these old stories that we'd mentioned earlier in the show about who we believe ourselves to be. So these are these dusty old narratives that can hook us, to use your term, at critical moments, such as when we get negative feedback or we need to give negative feedback when we feel pressure to take on more work and things like that. So how do we update these narratives in the same way that we might update our resume? So just as we no longer list our summer jobs once we're out of college, (laughs) some of this other stuff from way back needs to be left behind as well. How do we do that in a practical way It's one thing to say, hey, ditch your old stories at work. They're not serving you. And people go, great, I'm going to throw that in my to-do list and then never do it because it doesn't mean anything.
0: (laughs) So a very, very important aspect of updating our stories, updating our narratives is this idea of being open to our emotions. You know, when we start experiencing dissonance in our lives, when we start experiencing that like niggly feeling, often what we do is we just ignore it. And over time, we start to atrophy. Over time, we start to lose the sense of grace and challenge and growth in our lives. And so a very important part of becoming more emotionally agile in the way that, you know, with the example that you just described is firstly, when we experience these senses, these experiences of dissonance, this like little light that's shining in us that says, oh, maybe you could do such and such, or maybe you could make a real go of this interest that you have, instead of snuffing it out, is starting to explore it. Starting to explore that this can feel uncomfortable because sometimes it starts to challenge a comfortable way that we are, even if that way doesn't serve us. So often going to those places can feel uncomfortable, but you know, doing things like journaling. Journaling is a really, really powerful. We know, for instance, that people who journal about a difficult experience or something that feels frustrating to them, who journal for, you know, 20 minutes a day, literally over a period of three days. This is Professor James Pennebaker's work. What we know is they start getting greater levels of insight into those emotions. And what they're starting to get a sense of is, what is my value here what is it that i'm trying to get the person might be trying to get a greater level of growth in their career or they might be trying to get a sense of creativity in their career so a very very important part of it is firstly again this openness secondly about being able to label thirdly about being able to start saying what is the why what is the value that is underneath this sense of being stifled that I need to start shifting. And then a very important aspect of being able to change our narratives is by making what I call tiny tweaks. Tiny tweaks are tiny values-aligned changes to our lives. Often, people think that in order to make a change, they've got to sell up and go live on a wine farm in France, you know, or they've, they've got to give up their job and they've got to make these dramatic changes throw in the towel. And what's really fascinating is that we know that this is not the case. We know that in order to make real change in our lives, often what is required is small values aligned shifts. So this is the person who for the past five years has been saying, I don't do X. I don't dance at parties, or I'm not a math person, so even though I'd love to go into that career, I'm just not gonna do it because it involves some aspect of math or whatever, whatever it is. That what you can start doing is we can start experimenting and making small values-aligned tweaks by extending ourselves with who we're interacting with, by what we're doing, expanding the breadth and depth of our experience. Breadth being that you're doing more. Of what is values connected? So you going into different contexts, going to different environments, trying to connect with other people who you might not have connected with before, you know, what might be your tribe? And what we're doing is we're starting to expand our narrative in that way. Another thing that we can start doing is we can explore in depth. We can start having different, newer, deeper conversations with our loved ones, with our colleagues, with our staff members. And what we're starting to do is we're starting to then expand our muscle, if you like, about our ability to to move forward in our lives. A very important way that we start challenging our narratives is by making very small values-aligned tweaks that bring us closer to ultimately being the person, the leader, the parent, the career individual that we want to be.
1: Of course. And these changes, this getting out of your comfort zone kind of a trope that we parade quite a bit on the show. One thing that you had mentioned early on in the book that immediately hooked me was what you call the curse of comfort. And I would love to wrap with this because it does sort of branch off into everything that we've just been talking about here, which is that if we get comfortable with our negative emotions or, or with our positive emotions, we sort of lock ourselves into a pattern where it's tough for us to grow because those emotional reactions are ingrained, but also how we react to our emotions is also ingrained. And all of that combines to be comfortable and can keep us where we are. So it's not just a matter of get out of your comfort zone. That's where change happens. There has to be more to this. And I would love to hear about why you refer to this as the curse of comfort.
0: So the curse of comfort, it's fascinating. You know, I'll just cite a very quick piece of research, which is this absolutely fascinating research that shows, for instance, that Imagine you are going to a job interview and you have to be at that job interview on time. Now, you know that your usual route that you would go to this particular location is snarled up because their road works. Now, you would say, well, most people, if they know that their usual route is snarled up, they're going to take back roads to make sure that they get to the job interview on time. When you assess this in research, what you find is amazingly, That people will take their usual route, even though they know the traffic is snarled up and then get to the job interview late. We are so bound by comfort that we will often engage in comfort even as we know, even when we know it is not serving us. So this idea of get out of your comfort zone only becomes doable when firstly, you actually like really start to explore difficult emotion, difficult experiences, firstly. Secondly, what is my emotion telling me? There's no point in getting out of your comfort zone in a way that is just for the sake of it. I'm not one of these people who believes that you should just Go and play tennis or do different things or get out of your comfort zone just for the sake of it. We should only be getting out of our comfort zone if being in our comfort zone is stopping us from living a life that is values congruent. And the way we get out of our comfort zone is to start recognizing what it is that is of value to us that our comfort zone is stopping us from getting. So a very simple example might be and it is a very simple example, is someone who is comfortable with not giving feedback. It feels very comfortable. They might be not giving feedback for years and years and years. But when they recognize or when someone says to them, get out of your comfort zone, you've got to give your staff members feedback, that lands up being what what I call in the book, I have to goal. You know, the person's like, I have to now give people feedback. It's not helpful. It doesn't work. That kind of behavior is not sustainable. For that individual, when that individual instead says, what is it that I value about my life and my work? What is it that is important to me? Oh, fairness is important to me. Fairness is critical to me. Now, how fair is it to my team if I don't give this person feedback? How fair is it to myself? How fair is it to the individual? The only way we can truly start getting out of our comfort zones is we start recognizing what is the value that is either being hindered by staying in our comfort zone or how connecting with our value can actually drive us out of our comfort zone. The way we create sustainable behavior in our lives is by moving from goals that are have-to goals, I've got to get out of my comfort zone for the sake of it, into goals that are intrinsically values aligned and you can sustain discomfort when you know that this discomfort is in the service of true growth, true collaboration.
1: This makes sense to me as well. It seems like this comfort concept, this curse of comfort is why some people, for example, keep doing bad habits, keep exercising bad habits, like making fun of people, even though they know it hurts them long-term, but it's an old pattern based on old behavior, but it might take longer to break out of it and it's not values-aligned anymore. Maybe before, when they were younger and insecure, it made sense to bring other people down, but you see full-grown adults doing this, and you just think, why are you still doing this? There's no way this is giving you any kind of advantage in your job. It's definitely not helping in your personal life. Why are you doing this? And the answer usually has to do with old stories that swirl together in this mixing pot and cause the curse of comfort. Some of it, sure, is lack of awareness, but a lot of it is because we're comfortable doing that, because we've always done it, and it aligned with old values and old stories. And so it seems like every, every year or so, we should get out that journal and start thinking about our values and where we want to go, and then start to take action in the direction of those values. Otherwise, we'll end up falling into the curse of comfort, and if you really don't examine your behavior and decide why you're doing it and see what if you're doing it because you're just comfortable, there you are, you're stuck, and you're probably stuck in the curse of comfort.
0: Absolutely. And when we look at any kind of habit, you know, even if we look at habits around health changes, you know, why is it that someone is told by a doctor that unless they change their health habits, they will die? Why is it that the person continues to engage in those habits? There's nothing inherently wrong in habits. Habits are helpful unless they don't serve our values. And so when we look at even something like a health change, often people will say things like, Well, I have to lose weight because the doctor's at me, or I have to lose weight because someone's telling me to do it. That's what we call, or what I call in the book, a have-to goal. If instead you start saying, what is the want-to goal? What is the values-aligned aspect of health? Oh, I want to grow old to see my children you know, leave home and get married. What you start doing is you start moving from what is called a have-to goal into a want-to goal. And it's these want-to goals of values aligned that are what ultimately help us to create real habit change in our lives and habit change that is sustainable and connected with who we want to be as people rather than just changes for the sake of it or changes because it's what everyone else is telling us to do.
1: Susan, thank you so much. This has been really informative. There's so much here. The book, Emotional Agility, is loaded with stuff like this. There's a ton of exercises, a ton of things to look out for, and a ton of ways to move ahead, break the curse of comfort, et cetera. So thank you so much for your time. And we really appreciate you making this accessible to us and usable instead of just a bunch of psychological concepts or tropes and cliches.
0: And if any of your listeners are interested, I've actually got a free emotional agility quiz on my website, which... People are welcome to take, if they want, it's five minutes and they get a 10-page report. And that's at susandavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N, if that's of interest.
1: I'll mention that in the show close and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes directly so people can go there and do that.
0: Excellent. 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 Sounds great.
1: All right great big thank you to Dr. Susan David. The book title is Emotional Agility. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode, as always. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Susan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Dr. Susan David when you get a chance, of course, at your earliest convenience. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram. I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Instagram. Don't forget, of course, we have that worksheet for today's episode, so you can make sure you solidify the takeaways from Susan David. That link will be in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, You should join us in the AOC challenge. I'm telling you, if you're not doing this, you're missing out. The challenge is about improving your networking skills and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free, it's unisex. This is something to start the ball rolling and get some forward momentum and apply the things you're learning on the show here to your life every single day. And we'll send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, influence strategies, persuasion tactics, emotional agility, of course, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our live programs here at the Art of Charm. This will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it'll sure as hell make you a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com challenge. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net, and I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.